Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. This is the final message in a series I've called How God Treats His Children. I have, what, a dozen messages so far? But I've only had about half a dozen points I've been trying to make. So for one last time, I'm going to call on somebody to stand up and repeat them. Would you be terrified if I did that? Could you repeat them if I did that? I mean, every I've 12 times now, I've told you what they are. Can you remember them? Let's see. God blesses his children. He has blessed us with everything we need to grow to spiritual maturity. Second point, God encourages his children. He does that through his word. He does that through fellowship with one another. The third thing I said is God, like a father, disciplines his children. He trains us. And in that regard, he can get angry, though he does not discipline us out of anger. He disciplines us out of love, according to the book of Hebrews. Then I said, and this is where I really wanted to go, that God rewards faithful children. And the last point I've made is, and he disinherits unfaithful children. Now, those are the points that I've been trying to make in this series, and I've made them. So why is there one more final message? And the answer to that is this. For one thing, I want to answer a question or two that comes up on this subject that I have not addressed. But more importantly, what I want to do is sort of summarize everything. For example, as I've gone through this series, I've mentioned a number of things that you do in order to receive a reward. But those things need to be systematized. Could we categorize them? Could we list them? I think that would be a helpful exercise. I want to talk about some other things pertaining to the judgment seat of Christ. But those are the two primary things I want to do. That is, excuse me, talk about when we get rewards. Two, what do we have to do to get rewards? That is, what are the qualifications? Thirdly, what are the rewards we will get? That is, the nature of rewards. And then I want to say one more time a word about the downsides or the negative aspects of the judgment seat of Christ. Ready? Now, normally at this point, what would I do? I'd have you turn to a passage of Scripture, right? I'm not going to do that this time. I want you to sit back and listen. I'm going to quote a pile of Scripture. I'd love to take the time to have you turn to each one of them because I think there's value in you seeing in our Bible. But we don't have time. It's going to take too much time for us to go through all of this, so I'm going to just quote some passages. 
First question is, when is all of this going to take place? The answer is, immediately after the Lord returns. Now, the way we know that is because of the number of references in the New Testament where it talks about the fact that his rewards are connected to what is called that day. And in the New Testament, that day is the day the Lord returns. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3.13, we are told, each man's work should become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire shall test everyone's works of what sort it is. That verse just says, that day. But it gets more specific in chapter 4, verse 5 where it says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Or in Philippians 2.16 it says, hold fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Or again, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, it says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord at His coming? Or 2 Timothy 4.8, Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. Or 1 Peter 4, 5, 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That one says it about as clear as any verse in the New Testament. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory. And in that verse, he's speaking to the elders. There are several verses in the book of Revelation that say something similar. The last chapter, verse 12, says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his works. So, all of those references, and even a couple of more, indicate that the Lord will reward us when he comes back. So most Bible teachers conclude that what's going to happen is the Lord's coming back, we're going to meet him in the air, and there's going to be the rewards banquet. In the meantime, there's going to be some tribulation on the earth, and then he's going to come back to the earth and set up a kingdom. So that answers the question of when. What I want to do next is answer the question of, all right, If it's possible to be rewarded, what do I have to do to get a reward? Would that interest you? Salvation is free. That's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. All you have to do to go to heaven is trust Christ. But beyond that, it's possible to receive a reward. I'll talk about what those are in a minute. But first, what do I have to get to get the bonus points? Getting to heaven is one thing. There are bonus points. Can I call them that? 
What do I have to do? Well, I'm going to list seven things. Some of you take notes and you're going to have to write real fast. All right? Copy down all the verses. The first thing I would say is this. You need to live a life of faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we walk not by sight, but by faith. The one thing the Lord wants you to do is just trust him, which is, I think, the basis of all relationships. If you lose the trust in a relationship, you lose the relationship. It's the foundation, fundamental thing of all relationships. And it begins with the Lord. We trust him to get us to heaven, to give us eternal life. But he wants us to keep trusting him. But he rewards us if we grow in faith. For example, in James chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Believers who are rich in faith are heirs of the kingdom. Now, you've heard me say before, it's one thing to enter the kingdom. It's another thing to inherit the kingdom. It's one thing to enter a house. It's another thing to inherit a house. So to enter the house, all you have to do is be born again. John 3, by faith in Jesus Christ. John 3. In order to inherit the kingdom, James 2, 5 says, those who are rich in faith. Ah. Some of you will recall that uh, recently I went through Matthew chapter 8. Matter of fact, I think it was last time. And in that passage, Jesus says, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. So there's a difference between having faith, a little, which all it takes to get to heaven, and having a great deal of faith, being rich in faith. And in that passage, he's talking about being rewarded. Or in Hebrews chapter 6, we are told, and we desire that each of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That verse says it very clearly. You inherit the promise, the kingdom by having faith. In the book of Revelation, Jesus judged seven churches, and the church of Sardis was overcome with spiritual darkness. And the point of that passage is that individual believers within that church who overcame the spiritual darkness would be rewarded with a white robe and confession before God the Father and the angels. The church at Laodicea was overcome with lukewarmness. But, they are told, those within the church and those in any church who overcome lukewarmness will be rewarded with co-rulership with Christ in the kingdom. Now, this really amounts to nothing more than just having a relationship with the Lord, trusting Aim to please him. Work as unto the Lord. Now, I think what I'm about to say 
is one of the most encouraging things I could tell you on this whole subject. What do you have to do to be rewarded? Real simple. Do whatever you do as unto the Lord. If you're a doctor, operate as unto the Lord. If you're a lawyer, exercise law as unto the Lord. If you're a janitor, sweep the floor as unto the Lord. If you're a mechanic, fix the car as unto the Lord, especially if you're working on my car. (laughs) Just do everything you do as unto the Lord. Now let me give you the passage that says that. If you want to write down a passage, this is the one to write down. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Paul is talking to slaves who had no choice in what they did and as a result could develop a bad attitude. But Paul says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So Paul takes the slaves of the Roman Empire who have become Christians. And he says to them, do what you do for the master, your human master, as if you're doing it for the Lord. And if you do, you get rewarded. So that's what you have to do. I'm saying that's a life of faith. It's believing that the Lord will reward you if you do everything as unto him. Now, Let me see if I can illustrate this point, which is real critical. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember Jesus said, if you pray to be seen of men, remember that passage? Remember what he said? You have your reward. If all you're doing is your righteous acts or religious activities, to be seen of men, to be seen of people, then that's all you get. That's your reward. But if you did the same thing, like pray in that passage, as under the Lord, then you get rewarded by the Lord. So, the point I think is that you need to live a life of faith, meaning I'm going to live my life in light of the Lord, in relationship to the Lord, And I'm going to do everything I do as unto him. Amen? And amen? Maybe I could stop now. Because that really says it all. But have no fear. I'm not about to stop. Second thing you need to do is live a righteous life. If you're walking by faith and you're trusting the Lord and you're walking in relationship to him, this will be a byproduct, but it needs to be stated separately. Paul says, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. Now, the crown of righteousness is not a crown consisting of righteousness. It is a crown that is a reward for 
righteousness. And he says it's given to all who love his appearing. In 1 John chapter 3, we're told, those who love his appearing purify themselves. John, 1 John 3, 3. So the idea is, if you're walking with the Lord, you're trusting in him as you do, and you're obeying him, then you will live a righteous life, and you get rewarded for doing that. A lot of people think you have to live righteous to get to heaven. Well, in the first place, you can't, because it doesn't pay for sin. But you get rewarded for living a righteous life. And one message in this series, I dealt with three passages in the New Testament that talk about being disinherited. Remember that? They that do X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, those A, B, C, K, L, M, X, Y, Z, all those lists of sins had to do with unrighteousness. Then the point is, if you do those you'll not inherit, the opposite is true. If you don't do those and live a righteous life, you will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, the Lord judged seven churches in the book of Revelation. The church of Pergamos was overcome with the tolerance of false teaching that involved eating things sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. The Lord says to that church that the individuals who overcome that temptation will be rewarded. The church at the Baratara was overcome with a compromise with sin. The individual believers in that church were pressured to compromise with sin. And the Lord says, if you're faithful to the end and you live a righteous life, you will be rewarded with authority in the kingdom and the morning star. Ah, let me, let me give a specific. Remember the Beatitudes? One of them says, the meek shall inherit the earth. You know what that's saying? If you're meek, which is part of being righteous, then you will inherit. That's a reward word in the Bible. You will inherit the kingdom. What does meek mean? Well, many think it means weak. That's not the case at all. The Greek word means to be gentle, to be humble, and to be considerate. Moses would said to be the meekest man in the earth, and there was absolutely nothing weak about Moses. You can't lead that many people around the desert without having some kind of backbone and strength. At any rate, meekness inherits the kingdom of God. I think most people think to get to heaven, uh, you have to be mighty. No, Jesus said you have to be meek. Nietzsche, one of the famous philosophers, rewrote this beatitude and said, assert yourself, for it is the arrogant who take over the earth. Uh, remember Leo DeRocher? Uh, remember the Yankees? I mean the Giants? Uh, he said, nice guys finish last. Well, that's the attitude of the world. Jesus said, the meek, not the mighty, inherit the earth. The meek don't finish last, because the last shall be first. The last down here should be first up there. It's the meek that will inherit the earth. The point is, 
You need to live a righteous life, which means you'll end up living a life of faith. You're going to trust the Lord to do what's right, and even trust Him to give you the power to do it. All right, number three. You interested in this list? It gets better and better. You need to live a loving life. You need to live a loving life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Did you hear that? This love that's been matured, perfected, matures the idea, will give us boldness in the day of judgment. He goes on to say, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because that involves torment. So the point is, that if you've lived a loving life, you will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ for it. James says something similar. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, which is the law of love. The law of liberty will get you rewards because he goes on to say, for judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. It's in James chapter 2, verse 13. So again, the idea is if you're living a loving, merciful life, <laughs> you have no fear of the judgment. Your mercy will triumph over the judgment. So whatever you have to fear, and frankly, if you understand all that's involved, some of it could be scary, then if you just live the rest of your life as a loving, merciful person, then that triumphs over the judgment, according to James 2.13. Some of you ought to cling to that verse real close. In the book of Revelation, the Lord judged seven churches, and he said the church at Ephesus had left their first love. And so he goes on to say that those who've overcome their lack of love will be rewarded with the right to eat of the tree of life. So he is saying again that if you live a loving life, you will be rewarded. Let's get specific. In Romans chapter 14, there's a dispute between people in the church over doubtful things, meaning... Uh, they're not necessarily right, and they're necessarily wrong, and some said, well, you can't do them, and some said, sure, you can. And Paul calls those the strong and the weak. And they are going at each other, and they're judging each other. So Paul teaches in that passage that the strong are not to despise the weak, and the weak are not to judge the strong. Love dictates that, the blood, that believers receive each other and not judge one another according to debatable things. Paul says in that passage, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? These two questions are addressed to the two groups of people, the strong and the weak. Showing contempt is the translation of a word that means despise. Don't despise one another. So Paul is asking, why did the weak judge the strong, and why did the strong have contempt for the weak? And then he says this, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
In other words, believers are accountable to the Lord when they appear before him. He is the sole judge. If that is the case, then why would you judge or condemn someone else? That is not the loving thing to do. Now, I am tempted to put in this category serving. And here's the reason. Because serving, understood in the New Testament, is a result of loving. For example, we're told in Galatians 5.13 that we are to, through love, serve one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the love chapter of the Bible, it says that without love, it profits you nothing. Profit is a word that refers to being rewarded. So without love, you have no profit. You have no reward. Now, it's possible to serve and do it to be seen of men, to do it with the wrong motive. So that's why I'm going to put serving under the category of loving. So if you serve, now let's go back to the first point, as unto the Lord, then you will be doing it out of love, and for that you get a reward. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that even the smallest service done for the Lord, such as giving a cup of water, would be rewarded. That's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Paul says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is not even you in the presence of the Lord at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Now he's talking about the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. And that's because you've led people to Christ, which is a form of serving. And if it's done out of love, then you get rewarded. Or he tells elders in 1 Peter 5, 4, that when the chief shepherd Jesus Christ returns, he will reward the under-shepherds. And again, the subject is service, which needs to be done out of love. How are we doing? Got it so far? What have I said? Faith, righteousness, love. You know how often I keep coming back to those three subjects? This is a big book, and I've spent my life teaching it, and I keep bumping into love and righteousness. It's all over the place. That's the bottom line. The Lord wants you to trust him, and go do what's right because it's right, and go love people. That just about summarizes the whole Bible. But don't fear, I have more. For example, I think that we get rewarded for suffering. In Romans chapter 8, it says, those who suffer with Christ, will be joint heirs with Christ. That's Romans 8, 17. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who persecute you, uh, blessed, I'm sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the book of Revelation, the church at Sardis was overcome because they were facing persecution and suffering. And he tells them that if they overcome that, they will be rewarded for that. The church of Philadelphia was overcome because they were faced with opposition. And those who, in, we're told in the book of Revelation 21.7, the overcomer will inherit all things. So again, did you ever get persecuted? Have you ever been opposed because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, stick around. It's going to get worse. But if you endure it as unto the Lord, trust the Lord in the process, you get rewarded for that. Or there's giving. Uh, believers receive award, an award for supporting God's work. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about this. He was in prison at the time. They were sending money because in those days you had to have money to even live in prison. And he writes them a note to thank them. And he says this. Um, he tells them that he's not seeking a gift, but he seeks fruit that may abound to their account. Meaning that because you supported the Lord's work, you will be rewarded by the Lord. He says the same thing in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 and 8. So if you want to um, receive a reward, then just give. I'm talking about money, in case you missed that. Maybe we could put that under the category of loving as well, because the Lord loves a hilarious giver. In Matthew chapter 25, we are told that Jesus said, then the king said to those on the right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. So ministry, as unto the Lord, to his family, gets rewarded. Someone has written, what I spend is gone, what I keep is lost, but what I give away will be mine forever. A friend of mine tells about a friend of his whose entire business was destroyed by a flood on the Platte River in Colorado. Exhausted, 
and seemingly left with nothing. He told his wife, you know, honey, the only thing we have left is what we have given away. Now, if you understand the Bible, you understand how profound that is. Keep it for yourself, and you lose it. Give it away, and you store up for yourself treasure in heaven. All right, how are we doing? Faith, righteousness, love, suffering, giving. You got all that? Uh, got some more. Want me to give you some more stuff? I think the Bible puts a premium on just being faithful. Whatever you do, be faithful. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, it is required in stewards that one is found faithful. And you'll recall that Jesus told several parables and about rewarding people. And in each of them he said, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. Serve faithfully, and you will be rewarded for the faithfulness, for the faithfulness. As a matter of fact, I think that is so important that I used it as the key word in this whole series. Instead of saying something else, when I got to those last two points that I've been making throughout the whole series, I said, God rewards faithful believers. I could have said believers that trust him, righteous, loving, giving. But I chose the word faithful based on those parables. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Meaning, if you really captured faithful, you would have faith, love, righteousness, You'd endure in suffering, and you'd be giving. You'd be faithful in those areas. Now, I have one last thing to say about this, and it's an extension of what I just said, but I think a super critical point, and that is this. The Bible puts a premium on being faithful to the end. Now, contrary, what do I to what a lot of preachers preach, it's possible for a believer not to be faithful to the end. It's easy to illustrate. There's a sin unto death. You could die in sin. But the Lord says, if you're faithful to the end, that goes a long way in getting rewarded. So we're told in James chapter 1, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Endure, and you receive a crown of life. So the book of Revelation contains a verse that says something similar. So the word temptation in that verse means trial, as the verse in Revelation indicates. And I think the point is that believers who endure trials, uh, that they will be rewarded for their faithfulness of enduring. So, 
He says in Revelation 2.26, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, him will I give power over the nations. That needs to be repeated. It's Revelation 2.26. Did you hear that? It really is a sum of what, much of what I've said. He who overcomes and keeps my word until the end. He's obedient. He's trusting. He's faithful. To the end, I will give him power over the nations. Hebrews chapter 6 says, we desire that each of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, add to the list, not just being faithful, but being faithful to the end. Now actually, I could go on. I think that there are uh, other things that are mentioned in the Bible that are worthy of reward. One author says that uh, the parable of the talents and the Midas uh, contain rewardable traits such as goodness, faithfulness, wisdom, uh, hard work, instead of being lazy. And he goes on and on. In other words, I don't think my list is exhaustive, but I think it is comprehensive. That if you did the things I've mentioned, you would be greatly rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Shall we review them one more time? Maybe now is the time to call on somebody. I just hold them and say, if I point to you, and can you stand up and give me all seven? You wouldn't dare do that. You know what the number one fear is? Speaking in public. People fear that more than dying. Matter of fact, if I pointed you out and said you had to stop, you'd rather die, right? So I'm not going to do that. I want you alive. All right, here's the list. Faith, righteousness, love, suffering, giving, faithfulness, enduring to the end. All right. That answers the question of what do you have to do? The other question that needs to be addressed is, well, what do I get? What's the reward? And there are four. Number one, praise. That passage I've referred to now several times in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 says, And Paul said that the Lord will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one will have praise from God. Jesus said, well done, that's praise, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Those whose faith passed the test of painful trials, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, will receive praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So clearly, you will have praise. By the way, we all live for that on some level. 
Eh, we wouldn't say it like that. We would say, we really want somebody's approval. I mean, your parents, your mate, your boss. We want somebody's approval. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, we all have that in us. Well, that needs to be transferred to the Lord. That what we should do is live so that we can be pleasing to the Lord, which, by the way, is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he goes on to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. So that's a critical issue. I want, I want to hear the Lord say, well done. Can't please all the people all the time. I know that. I've learned that the hard way. But I want to hear him say, well done. Amen? All right, let me tell you the second thing you're going to get, joy. And again, it's the Lord saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Remember that? Most, probably the most famous verse on this whole subject. So there's joy. I've illustrated the fact that um, there are levels of joy. So that... Um, I think the illustration I used before was the joy at graduation, that the guy that uh, got all the awards at graduation probably had more joy than the person who barely squeaked by and got the diploma or the degree. But the illustration I've heard since that I think just really says it all is the quarterback who got MVP for the Super Bowl had more joy than the guy that was on the team, the winning team, but sat on the bench. There are levels of joy. So the greatest joy or for those who've been the most faithful. Then, of course, there is rulership. He says, you were faithful in little things in Luke 19. You will have authority over ten cities. And finally, I do not understand this one. Apparently, there are possessions of some kind. Jesus himself said, do not lay up for yourself treasure on the earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So those are the four rewards. Praise, pleasure, power, and possessions. Does that sound like what a Baptist preacher would do with that subject, or what? He would alliterate it. But the reason I think that's so significant is this. Isn't that what we live for down here? I mean, what do you live for? Well, I mentioned a moment ago somebody's approval. And beyond that, get to Friday and let's get into the weekend. Let's have some fun. And who doesn't want power of some kind? And possessions. We're eat up with that in this country. We hoard possessions. We collect them. We pile them up. Now, I'm not suggesting there's anything necessarily wrong with that, although there could be. What I am suggesting is that those legitimate desires should be considered in light of the Lord. Are you living for pleasure here? or for eternity. The book of Hebrews says there's a pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. Or do you want the pleasure 
that lasts forever and ever? Do you want the possessions that rot and decay or somebody steals? Or do you want the possessions that last for eternity? So, the point is, we will be rewarded in eternity by the very things that we want now. All right. I've got two hours left. I want to mention one more quick thing. And that is, is there any downsides? Is there any negative to this? And the answer is yes. I've mentioned this as I've gone through this series, but I want to summarize it by saying I think there are two. There's two problems with the judgment seat of Christ. One is exposure. Apparently, we run the risk of having what we've done exposed. Now, there's some debate as to who it's exposed to. Is it exposed just to the Lord, or does everybody get to see it? Well, let me tell you what Jesus said. By the way, I don't like what I'm about to tell you, all right? I don't want to go through this. I just want to go on record, all right? I'm not doing this because I like it. I'm doing this because I have to teach you what this book says, and this is what it says, all right? Jesus said uh, that he would um, confess us before angels. And in the parable of the kingdom, he said, and to bystanders, and he said, nothing covered up, uh, there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed, the hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you say in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner room will be proclaimed on the housetops. See why I don't like this? I'm calling that exposure. A pastor that I deeply respect as a student of the Scripture says this, that obviously not everything said in our bedroom will be shouted from the housetops. Christ is speaking of those sins we cover and refuse to bring to him in confession and repentance. That gives me some relief. Uh, I don't know for certain that that's the case, but I like it. So that... Uh, Deal with the sin. Don't harbor it. Certainly don't continue it. And, uh, but just know that the Lord knows everything, and it's coming out. There's a second downside, and that is there's going to be shame and sorrow at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's a great deal of debate about this among theologians, Bible teachers. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are four different views as to the downside. Some say unfaithful believers will lose reward, and that's the end of it. Uh, some say unfaithful believers uh, will be in outer darkness. I've spoken on that. And that's a figure of speech, and it's referring simply to being profoundly sorry that you wasted your life. Some say you will be excluded from the millennium, and uh, some go on to say that that's a literal place, 
and there's torment, and some just say you're going to be excluded from it, and so forth. Uh, my view is there's going to be shame. And my view is that because I have a verse that says that. 1 John 2, 28. Abide in him that you not be ashamed when he comes. So clearly, as things are exposed, we're going to stand before him and be ashamed. And then I talked about the fact that the, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is just a figure of speech of profound grief. So I think the downside is shame and grief, profound grief, sorrow of the way you lived your life. When I was preparing this series some time ago, I was sharing it with my brother as I went along, bit by bit, and at one point, he said to me, well, what have you learned? Now, my brother's a seminary grad. He knows about this subject. And so the question was, what have you learned I don't know? Or what have you learned that's a little different? And I remember saying to him, I've learned two things. Number one, the judgment seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, everything's going to be exposed. And number two, unfaithful believers are going to have loss of reward, potential reward, that is, and there's going to be some great grief and great sorrow. All right. How are we doing? We got it? Let me give you the bottom line. Real, real simple. You want to go to heaven? Yes. You just don't want to be in the next load, right? Here's what you have to do. Trust Christ, period. End of report. It's a gift. God gives it to you. Whether you are faithful or not, he gives it to you. To him that worketh not, but believes in him that justifieth ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's Romans 5. Uh, or Romans 4 or 5, I should say. All right. That's, uh, that's how you get there. How would you like to be rewarded? Ah, praise, power, pleasure, possessions. How would you like to have those rewards in heaven? Well, then you have to do this. Live a life of faith, righteousness, love. Suffer as under the Lord. Give, be faithful, endure to the end. The one line that summarizes this message and the whole series is when the Lord returns, he reward those who have been faithful. Now, I've mentioned this. This is scary stuff. I mean, you look at your life. There are things I'm ashamed of. Some of the things I've said, I wish I could take back. You've been there? So this isn't the most exciting subject I've ever taught, but I think it's one of the most necessary, one that's often overlooked. For sober belie for believers who are thoughtful, this is a sober and sometimes scary subject. Billy Graham was asked by Diane Sawyer uh, how he would like to be remembered. And sadness came over his face. And he said, I would like to hear the Lord say to me, well done, thy good and faithful servant, but I don't think he will. 
Billy Graham said that? Where does that leave me? So there's a scary part to this. But you see, I think that's a healthy thing. Fear should motivate you to do it right for the rest of your life so that you have nothing to fear at the judgment seat of Christ. Or to say it as George Beverly Shea said it, he was the soloist for Billy Graham. When he was asked what it would be like when Christ returns, what he would like to be when Christ returns, he said, on pitch. <laughs> the point of this is we need to be in tune with the Lord. Or, to say the same thing another way, I have a pastor friend, and he and I were talking about this subject, and he said, here's what you need to tell him. He said, don't get to the end and say, I wish I had. Get to the end and say, I'm glad I did. Father, thank you for giving us heads up. Telling us what's going to happen so that we can prepare for it properly. And Father, we pray for grace that we might do what you've told us to do, and do it faithfully to the end. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.